His name wasn't really Butternut, was it? Gansey asked Adam in a low voice. Chapter 35, page 332, The Raven Boys. Hi, I'm Shannon. And I'm Navita. And we're, we're the, the Raven, Raven Girls. Girls. Welcome to our Raven Cycle Podcast. Where we talk about four dysfunctional teenagers and why you should never stick your thumb inside of your fist when throwing a punch. <laughs> this is episode 12, where we'll be talking about chapters 33 through 35 of The Raven Boys. We will also be taking a deep dive on psychometry. Disclaimers. This is an analysis podcast. We'll be discussing The Raven Cycle as a cycle. This means we are spoilerific. So, as always, you probably want to have read the books before listening. We will use pronunciations from the audiobooks, and page numbers are referenced from the paperback editions. Yep. And a disclaimer from me, this podcast has a teen plus rating. There will be canon levels of adult content, including Ronan swearing, 300 Foxway drinking, Kavinsky lewdness, hopefully no gray man violence. I don't have the energy for gray man violence today. (laughs) Okay. All right. Let's get on with the episode. Yep. (laughs) All right. Chapter 33, a Gansey POV chapter. Gansey contemplates his actions and his annoyance with Ronan, driving the pig recklessly through the night until it breaks down in the most plot-convenient way possible. Our least favorite shitbird decides that this time he's going to stop, threaten our protagonist with a gun, do a villainous monologue for his confession, and bail without accomplishing much of anything, as usual. (laughs) All right. So there is a little bit of timeline fuckery, which these books apparently are known for, between the last few chapters and the next few chapters, because Kella specifically tells Blue that Friday night is when they're going to do the raid on Neve's room slash watch the dwarf movie. (laughs) But while Gansey is driving during this chapter and when Ronan drops Adam off at the trailer later this same night, they talk about having to go to class the next day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) It's just a timeline fuckery thing. Mm -hmm. Stuff they don't catch in editing. Yeah. Lots of stuff they don't Um, catch and editing. So Gansey is full of restless, dissatisfied energy and laments that his parents' house wasn't truly home anymore if it ever had been. He also realizes that this is because they hadn't changed, he had. Right. And I can so relate to Gansey here, but I also want to note that I think all the other stuff that he's dealing with is really the root cause of his unease. Just all the stuff that's mm-hmm. going on. He's been distant from his family for a long time, but I also get having other problems making you want to connect with family again. Right. He mentions that the radio had stopped working again. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I still say the pig is magical in some way. And I still say it's just a piece of crap. <laughs> <laughs> and he mentions that the Camaro was louder after dark. Most cars generally are, or at least it feels that way. Have you been in a Camaro? I'm not. Like an old Camaro. God, they're so loud. <laughs> And I can see this because if you're on a deserted road, it's almost like it's echoing back to you, like off of the trees, because it's just this visceral rumble Uh in a car like that. And he's ruminating over the events of the last chapter and thinking to himself that no matter how hard he tried, he kept becoming a Gansey. I know that everyone makes use of the privilege that they have, but do Gansey's parents actually bribe people to get their way? (laughs) I doubt they would be so uncouth as to call it a bribe, but a tip or a donation, Mm -hmm. much like he called it, probably isn't that far out of the ordinary. And while I feel for Gansey about not wanting to be like his parents, I still hate the bride. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, he had a choice there. Yes, and, you know, he made it. Mm-hmm. And he was like, but how else was he supposed to keep Ronan and Aglumby and at Monmouth? And I'm like, you're not, Gansey. Right. Like, it's Ronan's call. And Gansey flat out admits that Ronan's not going to listen to what he has to say. Mm-hmm. And he thinks to himself, all Ronan had to do was, and I'm like, stuff that he hates. Right. Stuff that's useless to him for a year. Right. Yeah, I find it so odd that in so many ways, Gansey doesn't seem to know Ronan or Adam very well. Mm-hmm. And he thinks then he was free and he had his money from Declan and he could do whatever the hell he wanted. And in some fundamental ways, okay, this is true, but it's not Declan's fault that Niles will stipulates that he must finish school and he can't go back to the barns. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that Declan's kind of a convenient target on this, but he's not the right one to yeah, be upset at not- with this. 
And Gansey looks at his phone and is like, oh, no signal. But he wanted to talk to Adam. And Adam kind of grounds the entire group. Yeah, he's definitely the sounding board for Gansey. Mm-hmm. I find this next mix of occurrences interesting. Gansey wants to talk to Adam. The scent of caves water, leaves and water, growing things and secret things, floats through the window. And Gansey starts thinking about caves water and acting like Ronan. Yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> and instead of seizing the chance to go back to caves water, Gansey had to babysit. And mm-hmm. I understand he loves Ronan, but this isn't the best, most equal way to be viewing a friendship. His savior complex has got to stop somewhere. Mm -hmm. Gansey punched the accelerator, exploded off the line. The engine drowned out the pound of his heart. This is all Ronin language. Violent and angry and also racing. Yes. Hells yes. (laughs) It's our first instance of Gansey on fire and Gansey being reckless. Mm -hmm. It's pretty great. And he's like, damn Ronin. And it's another instance of three. Right. It's a nice repetition of thoughts used as a device. Mm Mm-hmm. And Gansey thinks to himself that Ronan had no limits, no fears, and no boundaries. That's not true. They're just not your... Right. I agree. Ronan mm-hmm. is afraid of himself and his secrets. Uh-huh. If Gansey had been Ronan, he would have crushed the gas pedal to the floor until the road or a cop or a tree stopped him. Gansey didn't know how to be that person. Mm. That's fine. You don't have mm-hmm. to be that person. The Chimera abruptly shuddered and Gansey knew he was done for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the engine went dead, just like on St. Mark's Day. Magic! Whereas I said, plot convenient pig. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Gansey breathed out a swear word. He's swearing off screen again. Yeah. If there had been a belt hanging loose, he might have been able to fix it. As it was, the engine was an enigma. Later, Adam observes that Gansey only learns enough to be superficially competent (laughs) in page 337. This is definitely one of those times when competence would have saved him, but it's nice to see him become more and more comfortable fixing the pig as the series progresses. Gansey's little reception dance, like uh-huh. the, the Statue of Liberty right. thing, is absolutely something you do in the hills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've done it many, many times. And somewhat bitterly, Gansey recalled his father's suggestion he take the Suburban back. Nobody <laughs> likes it when their dad is right about these sorts of things, no. are they? <laughs> And a car pulls up behind Gansey, and here we see that payoff from chapter two, where Welk drove by as Gansey was broken down. Mm-hmm. I wonder, was Welk following Gansey? I don't know. Well, yeah, I don't know either. It's just such a weird coincidence mm-hmm. that Welk would be there. And then I love this description. For a blink, the figure in front of him was unfamiliar, a homunculus of a man. It's so good and so threatening. And if the previous chapter supposedly ended with Noah telling the group that he was killed by Welk, and this chapter is at night, why wouldn't someone have called Gansey with this information that Welk was Noah's killer? Adam calls about something as, like, to be honest, trivial as Ronan getting kicked out of Aglenby, but doesn't call to drop this truth bomb. Mm. That makes no sense to me. Right. So Welk demands Gansey's journal and his cell phone. And he pulls out a small, impossibly real looking handgun. It reminds me of Green Mantle thinking the silvery ones looked less dangerous to him. Although he supposed that was a fallacy that could get him into trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 14, a blue lily, lily blue. Uh Gansey thinks that it was hard to go from the idea that Barrington Welk was creepy in a way that was entertaining to joke about with Ronan and Adam to the idea that Barrington Welk had gun and was pointing it at Gansey. And I'm like, really? Because it doesn't seem that far-fetched for, well, Yeah, I can completely see Gansey having a hard time wrapping his head around that Mm -hmm. because I don't personally think I would expect a teacher to pull a gun on me. I can see that, (laughs) yeah. I mean, I guess we know, for some reason, know a little bit more about Welk than they do. Oh, we know a lot more about (laughs) Welk than they do. If they knew what we knew, they would have gotten rid of him a long time ago. (laughs) Gansey thinks to himself that he preferred his life to nearly all his possessions with the possible exception of the Camaro. And I'm like, the journal, though. Yeah. The last time he had seen Welk, he'd been turning in a quiz about fourth declension Latin nouns. I looked up what declension is, and Latin is horrendous. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, welcome to my like googling Latin shit <laughs> for episode nine. It was terrible. It hadn't occurred to Gansey that if the Camaro had been operating properly, fleeing would have been an option. But the plot did. <laughs> I'm like, I guess I can see that. I guess I can see being so like wrapped up in something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Welk asks where he's been going this week, and Gansey responds, "Pardon," because he couldn't hear him. Gansey is being polite, even with a gun to his head. Mm-hmm. And this pushes Welk over the edge. Although to be real, he was only barely on the edge as it was absolutely and Welk says the police called the school seven years you've screwed me it's like no you've screwed yourself exactly Welk is the epitome of rich white boy privilege here blaming Gainsey for being screwed when his situation is 100% his own damn fault yes also interesting both are very privileged Gansey wants to take responsibilities that aren't his and Welk wants to blame everyone else for his choices And I'm like, it takes until this moment for Gandhi to realize Welk killed Noah. Yeah. (laughs) Although I'm not sure I'd put two and two together myself in real life. Mm -hmm. Again, if like a teacher just happened to pull a gun on me. But it is so weird that the gang didn't call him to let him know. Uh There was a suspicion that nothing else in Gansey's life had ever been real except for this moment. And it's not exactly his normal deja vu, but close. Yeah, and I found this to almost be perhaps like an indication that he was about to disassociate or hyper-focus. Mm-hmm. And Gansey says to Welk that he was up in the mountain near Nethers. This is actually pretty far away on the other side of Shenandoah National Park. Mm-hmm. If you center fictional Henrietta somewhere around Mount Crawford, it would be about an hour and a half to Caveswater, which okay. I'm guessing what he's saying where he's been because he talks about GPS coordinates. Uh-huh. And the only time we've heard him mention GPS coordinates was with Caveswater. Right. Or he's saying the abandoned church. Mm. It's not clear exactly yeah. which one. But if you guys want to look at a map, Wishing Stardust on Tumblr did a pretty sweet one of the locations in the Raven Cycle, which we'll link to. Mm-hmm. So you can just feel Gansey's hopelessness as he realizes the GPS coordinates are in the journal like you just Mm -hmm. said just like it doesn't matter yeah Gansey flinches at Glendower's name Mm -hmm. and the only reason Welk knows of Glendower is because he raided Gansey's locker Uh again Welk's narcissism means that he could have been put on this path a long time ago if he had even bothered to listen to Gansey talk right even a little bit yeah he tried to connect with Welk Mm mm-hmm Though Gansey had never heard it in person before, he knew exactly what sound a pistol made when the safety was taken off. Yeah. Welk placed the barrel of the gun on Gansey's forehead. It's fucked. It's so intense. It really is. Gansey had the same detached feeling that he'd had in Monmouth Manufacturing looking at the wasp. It's a panic attack. Understandable. Right. And just looping back to the comment that I made before about like kind of dissociating. Mm -hmm. It almost seems like he starts a little bit before. Mm -hmm. And I wonder about this splitting of timelines because he's talking about how he can see in his head the reality plus he can see in his head a time when he might die here and with the wasp both. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if he's actually seeing possibilities that could be leading to his death or is his time loop fixed? Basically, I'm wondering if Maybe there are things, branching yeah. timelines and he's literally actually seeing a time here when, where yeah, when, the when branch Wasp could killed die. him and then when mm-hmm. Welk killed him. And right, right. Yeah, that's an interesting thing to think about. Maybe like this timeline is one where he actually gets it right. Right, exactly. And he sees in his mind a bullet burrowing into his skull death and it rang of the death card imagery to me Mm -hmm. the journal was him he was giving everything that he'd worked for away if you just asked Gansey said I would have told you everything in there I would have been happy to it wasn't a secret and the teachers the other teachers told Welk this as well like if you want to know he'll talk 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 your ear off Uh I can't believe you'd bother to say that, Welk says. And then Gansey says, that's how you know it's the truth. Mm-hmm. You disgust me, Welk said, holding the book to his chest. You think you're invincible. Guess what? So did I. Gansey's a mirror to Welk, and Welk hates himself. Yeah. When he said that, Gansey knew Welk was going to kill him. And, you know, it must be horrible knowing you're going to die and not knowing how. Right. Because he doesn't have any of the details, even that Blue has, of him being in the sweater or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And he thinks there was 
was no way that someone could have that much hatred and bitterness in his voice and not pull the trigger. Mm -hmm. They are mirrors, and Gansey represents everything that Welk feels that he's lost. But Gansey is a fundamentally good person who, like, even though he says the wrong things and hasn't quite learned how to check his privilege, Uh he's constantly thinking of others. Yeah. And all of Welk's actions have been in service of himself and no one else. And Gansey doesn't understand that at all. Exactly. Seven months before, Ronan had taught Gansey how to throw a hook. Gansey, I told you, don't think about how much it will hurt. (laughs) I can see Ronan saying this quite easily. Absolutely. Gansey had forgotten nearly everything Ronan had told him, but he remembered to look. And it was only that and luck that knocked the gun into the gravel by the road. And it's like, Ronan kind of sort of saves Gansey here in a roundabout way. Ronan is Gansey's weapon. Right. Gansey and Welk scuffle. They scrabble for the gun and skitter around the car before Welk is finally spooked off by another motorist and takes off. Mm. And I really liked this. Gansey lay in the grass of the ditch for a long time, listening to the breathing sounds the pig made as the engine settled. Mm -hmm. His thumb was really starting to hurt where he'd hit the gun. Really, he'd gotten off light, but it still hurt. In his (laughs) journal, he felt raw, the chronicle of his fiercest desires stripped from him by force. It's a big violation for Gansey. It is. He grabs the gun and he hears Blue's practical admonition of fingerprints. (laughs) And he gets in the car. He starts to drive away. It felt like another night, another car, another person had left his parents' house. And he opened his eyes. Nothing about the night looked the same as before. And Gansey has been changed by this encounter. Mm-hmm. Pressing the gas pedal, he tested the engine. It held no stutters. Mischief managed. The moment has passed. The pig goes back to normal. Yeah. <laughs> Welk had killed Noah, and he knew his cover was blown. Wherever he was headed next, he had nothing left to lose. Right. And somewhat unrelated, do you even think Gansey calls his parents after this happens? I don't think he does at all. I don't think he does. (laughs) I don't think he would either, yeah. Now we're going on to chapter 34, which is a blue POV chapter. Blue and Kala go on their reconnaissance mission. I mean, dwarf movie night. Tossing Neve's womb for evidence of what she wants in Henrietta. They're joined by Persephone, some of Neve's secrets are revealed, and Blue learns that some things, like your mother's pet names for your father, are best left unknown. <laughs> Butter uh, I make myself laugh. But... So this is the same evening, with Blue thinking about how she left Adam, Ronan, and Noah talking about Welk mm-hmm. back at Monmouth. Blue has never been a big fan of the attic. Slanting roof lines provided dozens of opportunities to hit your head on a sleeping ceiling. Blue, seriously, I am of a height with you, and if I'm hitting my head on a ceiling, that space is literally unusable by anybody else. That is not why you hate it. Yeah. (laughs) There was nothing up there but dust and wasps. Adam and Gansey, deliberate? I also noticed this regarding Adam and Gansey, and it seems like she likes Monmouth just fine, and it has both of those things as well. Uh Uh-huh. Moira was a diehard not collector. Can I learn to be that? I know, me too. (laughs) Uh, This is kind of funny because in the prologue of Blue Lily, Lily Blue, it says Kella was overwhelmed by how much shit Moira had in her room and she told Blue this. And also she notes that Moira liked chaos. Mm Mm-hmm. And here we have another reference to the table at Starbucks line from earlier. Yeah, I said, ah, here it is. Uh-huh. And then as they're walking up the stairs, what is it you're thinking she has up here? Ferrets? <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. Wizards? Well, that escalated quickly. <laughs> is it me? Is this, <laughs> is this my room? <laughs> God. Do you have ferrets and wizards? <laughs> wizards maybe but not ferrets okay i do like ferrets and then they're talking about the smell and ferrets can stink for sure it could still be the ferrets (laughs) Uh although wizards potentially could also be smelly (laughs) yeah i don't think they bathe the whole lot wizards (laughs) and then one of my favorite lines calla shot blue a look that blue suspected was more dangerous than anything they'd find in the attic (laughs) this made me giggle inappropriately loudly in the waiting room of the car dealership as i was getting my car serviced 
Smells like sulfur, Blue said, or a dead body. I need to smell asafoetida, apparently, because those two smells are very different. But either is appropriate, though. You know, the sulfur with hell and demons and the dead body for Noah. Though, you know, he was past the dead body smell. Right. Asafoetida, it's something that's delicious in curry or something that's very useful in witchcraft. It was hard to imagine something that smelled so convincingly of a dead person's feet being delicious in anything. I agree, if it smells like I would expect... (laughs) All right, I'm going to take a quick pause here. You have some. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So, because podcasting is such a multidimensional sensory experience, you want to smell some? Okay. All right. (laughs) Let's do this. (laughs) Just smell it. Just put your... That's not that bad. (laughs) Really? You think it's horrible? Well, stick your nose in there pretty deep. I can smell the rotten rotten onion kind of a smell. Yeah. That, yeah, that's fine to me. Not as bad. Okay. I was expecting it to be horrible. Me too. I was expecting, oh, yeah. If you really stick your nose in the bag, it's pretty bad. There's there's some like, (laughs) not all that bad, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Maybe it's just because it's still, like, pretty sealed? Yeah. Oh, God, no. It's. I think maybe you're just okay with it. I don't know. (laughs) I'm going to put it outside. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah, either my nose is more plugged than I think it is. (laughs) It's possible, yeah. (laughs) Or that was not nearly as bad as I was expecting Expecting, it to be. I was expecting it to be worse. I was expecting to open it up and be like... Anyway, so a little mini deep dive on asafoetida, just for fun. Asafoetida is a gum or resin created by cutting the bulb of a type of fennel plant and allowing it to weep sap, then collecting the results. Ah, that would be why it smells like onion. Fennel is usually kind of a licorice smell, actually. Ah, okay. It's grown primarily in the Near East, so like Iran or the Mediterranean, mm-hmm. and early records indicate that it may have been imported to Greece by Alexander the Great, and it was used often in ancient Roman cooking as well. Okay. The vile smell, which has been described <laughs> as sulfur and or rotting onions, dissipates in cooking and leaves a garlicky or onion depth of flavor behind. Mm-hmm. And this is especially helpful and useful in Indian food because some castes are prohibited the use of onions and garlic in cooking. Huh. So it has several claims as a preventative medicine, notably to repel germs or disease. Mm-hmm. Called asafidity bags. <laughs> Asafetida was put in small bags and hung around the neck or pinned underneath the clothes. This practice was endorsed by the U.S. Pharmacopedia as a remedy for the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic that killed almost, I have no idea, there's a lot of zeros behind that one. hundred million? A hundred lots of people. hundred million. Globally. Interestingly, I found a lot of references to Appalachian or Ozark folk magic or Materia Medica when looking this up. And it was used as an anti-flatulent, digestive aid, antimicrobial, remedy for asthma and bronchitis, among other things. Because of its smell, it has also had a connection to exorcism and driving out spirits of sickness or just spirits in general. Mm-hmm. For this reason, it's often burned alongside sulfur inside the house of an ill person where some witchcraft is thought to have been placed. Mm-hmm. In witchcraft uses, it seems to be used as Neve does, mostly for protection and banishing, though I saw some indication of it being used for prophetic dreams. Mm-hmm. It's also said to increase the strength of any ritual that wasn't a spirit conjuring, for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. One of the other names for asafetida is devil's dung, which made me laugh pretty hard. I also found a mention that it's associated with the devil card in the tarot, which I thought was an interesting connection. That is an interesting connection. So they're looking around the attic and two full length 
Footed mirrors faced each other, reflecting mirrored images back and forth at each other and perpetuum. Mirrors creep me out sometimes, and this definitely would. Yeah. In The Raven King, page 287, Gwenthian thinks, She would have known Neve's name even if the others had not told her, because the mirrors whispered and sang and hissed all the time. How they loved and hated her. She's talking about Neve. They judged her and admired her, lifted her up and tore her down. And I wonder if Blue might be picking up on an echo of this as well. Possibly. Mm-hmm. Also, it was cold. Cold means spirits, but the demon was cold too, right? Yeah, when something was manifesting in the pool as Neva scrying, it was cold. Blue became aware of her breath clouded in front of her. That's right. Page 170. Basically, anything takes energy to manifest, so it could be Neve manifesting a new future by those rules. Mm -hmm. Though I still suspect she may have ties with the demon. Yeah. Blue sees a small statue of a woman with eyes in her belly. And do you have any idea what that might be? No, I searched and found some interesting things, but nothing that seemed to fit the bill of who Neve is. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking maybe it's a goddess I just don't know about. Mm -hmm. If any listeners happen to know, send us an email. Yeah, I looked around a bit too and I couldn't find anything. I found things that I just didn't think were applicable. Mm -hmm. And I I didn't write it in the notes, but I was like, you know, Neve's room sounds a lot like my house. (laughs) (laughs) pretty much except hopefully my house doesn't stink of asafet at all though when we walk back into the kitchen we might have problems (laughs) shannon's like your house smells great of (laughs) asafet it's called asafetid come on shannon persephone shows up and startles the heck out of them and callus says you should make some noise when you enter rooms I did let the stairs squeak. I love Persephone's otherworldliness. Yeah, and I love that it was dropped in an earlier chapter that Persephone walks upstairs silently. Uh-huh. <laughs> Persephone lets Kala and Blue know that Mora will be back at midnight. Kala seems surprised that Mora knows. You didn't expect her to believe you about the dwarf movie, did you? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that was, yeah, that, oh, that yeah. was not a good Yeah, <laughs> This was more inappropriate giggling in the waiting room as I took notes. <laughs> Mora wanted to know more about Neve as much as they did. I think I agree. Mm-hmm. After some pressing by Blue, we find out that Neve actually did come to look for Blue's father, but at Neve's suggestion, not Mora's. Yeah, and I can't believe you skipped one of the best exchanges. Out of the blue, <laughs> Callist asked. I'd prefer if you didn't use that expression, Blue said. Out of nowhere, Calla repeated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't... <laughs> It made me laugh, but I, I don't know why I skipped over. Out of the blue? <laughs> Your father showed up 18 years ago, swept Mora off her feet, made her an absolutely useless friend for a year, got her pregnant, and then vanished after you were born. He was cagey and cute, so I assumed he was trailer park trash with a police record. And Kala here feels like a pouting Ronin to me. Yeah, yeah, I can get it because Ronin is very jealous. This does feel pretty judgy, again, because Kala should know about these boys if she works at Aglinby. Uh-huh. And she should likely know about Adam's background and if she knows about these boys, right? Uh-huh. So the comment, if she did know about Adam's background, seems pretty not great. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Kala's definitely showing some envy or jealousy here, although I've definitely had those friends who have become pretty wrapped up in their relationships and disappeared. Right. And it's always sad and you're just like, mm, yeah, they'll come back. They'll, maybe they'll come back. I don't know. And then Persephone basically calls Kala out on this as like, Kala! And yeah. Blue's like, no, it's fine. How could she be bothered by a stranger's past? Right. And Persephone calls Blue sensible. So that makes at least three. Neve, Adam, and now Persephone. Mm-hmm. Has anyone else said it on page yet? I don't think so. I know Gansey obviously says it later, mm-hmm. but not yet. So that's three. Blue still maintained her unreasonable fondness for him, her father. She was pleased he'd been cute. Her idea of her father is fabricated, but necessarily so. Like, yeah. Because she doesn't have anything else. Right. And her fondness is decidedly unreasonable. Artemis <laughs> is just not worth the build up, Blue. Mm-hmm. 
But it's one of those things where, like, it would be kind of hard not to do that. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Kala says she doesn't think Mora has been pining for him, but Persephone disagrees. And Persephone, like Adam, is usually right. Right. Although, so far, we haven't been shown any indication that Mora is pining for Artemis. Mm -hmm. It's sort of an informed argument. And I personally wonder how much of it is spun between the two women by their own circumstance. Mm -hmm. I.e., Kala isn't shown to have any romantic interest in the book, so she doesn't think Mora is pining. Uh-huh. But Persephone is shown to be pining over a lost lover and so might be projecting onto Mora. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So Blue asks, does he have a name? Puppy, replied Kala. Persephone giggled, clearly recalling memories of Mora insensible with love. Yeah. This cracks me up. Yeah, Kella says also lover, <laughs> which is what Maggie calls her own husband when talking about him online. <laughs> and then we have the butternut exchange, which is, right. oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And I so feel blue being slow to get it. Yeah, I have a dirty mind and I'm still not entirely sure what butternut is supposed to be a euphemism for. <laughs> like, I don't want to go real deep on that one, but like still... And I also love Kella's extremely jagged eyebrows and Persephone exploding into helpless laughter uh-huh. and Blue's seriousness dissolving any self-control the two women had left. Uh-huh. This definitely feels like a friendship joke that has been going on for 18 years. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. There was something unnerving about the utter impracticality of two reflecting surfaces pointing only at each other, Blue thinks to herself, and Blue is a mirror, and Blue is practical. Right. Don't stand between them, Persephone warned. Blue asks, why not stand between them? Oh, man, and this exchange hurts. I'm like, why did you do it, Persephone? Why did you, like... And Maggie actually on Twitter recently made a joke about almost falling into a mirror. And I really badly wanted to reply with, too soon. Uh (laughs) Too soon, Maggie. (laughs) And it's interesting to me that Blue, the only person who can stand between them without it being a problem, is the one who asks why she shouldn't. Right. Kella says, I don't want my soul put in a bottle in some other dimension or something. Is this what happens with Neve or Persephone? Because is this why Persephone could come back to talk to Adam? Because her soul is still intact? Yeah, that's... Yeah. Mm-hmm. What happens to Persephone just makes me so sad. That's the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Cal is looking around at stuff and touching things. And she says, apparently Neve's level of fame is not enough for her. Television programs are for nobody. Neve is craving respect and maybe she wants to lay line to help with that. Right. And Persephone says, don't be sarcastic, Kella. Hello, not possible. (laughs) (laughs) When Kella uses her psychometry on the mirror, she sees lots of different versions of Neve reflected in the mirror. There may be possibilities, she says. There's more connections between blue and mirrors because, you know, page of cups full of potential. Right. And Gwenthian says in Blue Lily Lily Blue, page 280, mirrors, I'm telling you, that is what we do. Mm -hmm. And Blue reflects, ha, no pun intended, on this scene. (laughs) Neve had stood between them and seen endless possibilities. Mora was always shuffling the page of cups out of her tarot. Look at all the potential she holds. Mm -hmm. So Callan mentions that she sees that Neve is comparing herself to another psychic named Layla Polotsky. And a cursory search didn't find anything, so just a made-up name. Yeah, I didn't find much either. Only a family name that was tied to Russian literature, uh-huh. uh, Simon Polotsky. Yeah, it doesn't appear to be a real person, or at least not someone on Google that right. I could find. This person was a psychic more famous than Neve. I didn't know that was possible, Blue replied. Oh, it's very possible. Ask Persephone. Oh, I don't know about that. And again, I want to know more about the Foxway Ladies past. Yeah. Because, like, I want to know if, like, you know, yeah. was Persephone a famous psychic? And Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I also didn't find anything about a Poldma family, although it was hard to pull anything up that wasn't directly related to this right. book. Right. I do wonder if Persephone's family or Persephone herself might be famous somewhere mm-hmm. in the world. And agreed, as always, I would love to have more background on these fascinating women. Mm-hmm. 
And then Kala says that Neve wishes she could travel the world and get some respect. And again, a quote from Gwenthian from The Raven King, page 288. It was Neve, Neve, lovely Neve, who hadn't respected herself in the end. Mm-hmm. Neve and Welk say they want the same thing, respect. But in the end, it's greed. Perhaps that's why they both feel like ineffectual villains. Mm-hmm. I agree. So Blue finds a little strong smelling pouch. And Kala says, that's the Asafetida. It's a protection charm. She got spooked by a dream and made it. And I wonder what the dream was. Yeah. One of the things that was mentioned was, actually, I don't even know that I wrote it down, but one of the things that was mentioned was a protection from nightmares as well. Mm-hmm. And then Persephone thinks that, well, maybe Neve did come to help Mora, but is getting a little carried away by Henrietta. Mm-hmm. And Blue tells Kala and Persephone about finding Neve under the tree and asks if the ley line actually does make being psychic easier. And they answer, yes and no. It's got a lot of energy, so it's like having you in the room all the time, but it's like your boys. It's quite loud. Yeah, and that struck me because it's like, because they're all magic as well. I mean, the boys, Mm -hmm. because even here, Gansey's technically caves water right ish and ronin's magic so i'm just wondering why they would say they're so loud Mm -hmm. of course we talked about that before as well right so then blue thinks to herself my boys blue thought first in a huff then flattered then in a huff again yeah and how she changes throughout the books and ends up calling them her raven boys mm-hmm. persephone asks Kala what she's finding out and Kala goes into a very detailed description of how neve was contacted about the ley line 11 months ago by a man offering to pay her expenses if she'd help him find it and she refused but then reconsidered guessing that mora might put her up if she offered to help find mora's lost boyfriend right neve has indeed been very very underhanded through all of this. Uh-huh. That's amazing, Blue said. That is Neve's day planner. Right. And I'm like, that is the best joke. I love that joke. Right. Oh, technology, Persephone side. I don't really see a day planner as technology. No, maybe like a PDA. Right. But... <laughs> yeah. Blue looks at the day planner and sees that it was Welk who contacted Neve. Again, Kala should know that name. Right. There's no logical reality where Kala would not know who Barrington Welk was when he walked in the door for a reading. Mm-hmm. And so Persephone had gone downstairs. She thought she heard a car. Then the single stair creaked again. That was still a little sinister. Speak of the devil and Neve appears. Uh-huh. Persephone comes back upstairs to announce she has bad news. First of all, your raven boys are here, and one of them seems to have broken his thumb on a gun. Secondly, Neve and Mora came home early. Right. We'll go ahead and put the deep dive here. We wanted to talk a little bit about Kala's ability of psychometry. And psychometry is a psychic ability in which a person can sense or read the history of an object by touching it. Such impressions can be perceived as images, sounds, smells, tastes, and even emotions. Mm -hmm. Psychometry as a term was coined by Joseph R. Buchanan in 1842, and it comes from the Greek word psyche, meaning soul, and metron, meaning measure. Buchanan, an American professor of physiology, was one of the first people to experiment with psychometry. Mm -hmm. Using his students as subjects, he placed various drugs in glass vials and then asked the students to identify the drugs merely by holding the vials. Their success rate was more than chance, apparently, and he published the results in his book, Journal of Man. Mm -hmm. To explain the phenomenon, Buchanan theorized that all objects have souls that retain a memory. And as I think we all know, I love to quote old poetry in these deep dives. So here's something I found in the Manual of Psychometry, The Dawn of a New Civilization, Volume 1, by Joseph Rhodes Buchanan, published in 1893. The poem by Reverend John Pierpont is talking about the difference between a daguerreotype, or a photograph, and psychometry. His science measures and reveals the soul. Thy subjects must be present. His may be sunk in the depths of the mysterious sea. Their bodies may have moldered into dust. Their spirits long have mingled with all the just, made perfect. Yet if one has left behind a written page, whereon the living mind has been poured out through pencil, paint, or pen, that written page shall summon back again. 
and actually it was much longer poem <laughs> like uh how long of a poem can you write about daguerreotypes and psychometry but apparently a really long one is the answer so types of psychometry from the book how to do psychic readings through touch by ted andrews published in 2014 there are supposedly three types of psychometry Object psychometry is the most common and the form most people are familiar with. Every object has its own energy and often is imprinted by the owner of that object in a unique manner. Mm -hmm. And then location psychometry is similar, supposedly, to feelings of deja vu. The sensation of having been somewhere before, although you've never been there. It's also similar to forms of dowsing and divining, such as in tuning to an ore sample to determine the feasibility of mining. It also said events, particularly those that are strongly emotional, leave traces. They imprint the location where they occur. These imprints can then be read. And that made me think of the ghost story episode. <laughs> Maybe we should cover the stone tapes theory. Maybe. And then the last one that was in this book was person psychometry, which I kind of was laughing about because it's based on the concept that we each have a unique energy field around us. Person psychometry is used by everyone. How often are we able to assess the mood of someone without speaking to them? <laughs> when we meet someone for the first time, are we instantly attracted or repelled? We may not know why these impressions occur, but they often register quite strongly. Mm -hmm. And then some famous examples of psychometry. William F. Denton, an American professor of geology, was fascinated by Buchanan's work. In 1854, he enlisted the help of his sister, Anne Denton Cridge. The professor wrapped his geological specimens in cloth so that Anne could not even see what they were. Mm. She then placed the package to her forehead and was supposedly able to accurately describe the specimens through vivid mental images she was receiving. That's one. Mm -hmm. Stephen Osovecki, born in Russia in 1877, he claimed several psychic abilities, including aura reading and psychokinesis. He was well known for being able to perceive the contents of sealed envelopes. Osovecki was tested at the University of Warsaw, where he supposedly produced accurate information about the detailed lives of prehistoric humans by holding a 10,000-year-old flint tool. However, another source said that when Osovecki tried to describe the stone tool's makers, his descriptions resembled descriptions of Neanderthals, although the tools had been made by anatomically modern humans. So I personally would not call that accurate. No. <laughs> no. And then another famous instance of psychometry or experiments with psychometry was Maria Reyes de Zerold. Zerold? Names. <laughs> I just, names. I feel bad because people just don't get my name right. And so every time I pronounce someone's name and I feel like I'm not getting it right. Yeah, mm. it's the worst. Zerold, I'll say. From 1919 to 1922, Gustav Pagenstecker, we'll guess, a German doctor and psychical researcher, discovered psychometric abilities in one of his patients, Maria Reyes de Zerold. When holding an object, Maria could place herself in a trance and state facts about the object's past and present, describing sights, sounds, smells, and other feelings about the object's experience in the world. Pagenstecker's theory was that a psychometrist could tune into the experiential vibrations condensed in the object. And then last, and a more recent one, George McMullen. McMullen, a carpenter and wilderness guide, was tested by educator J. Norman Emerson in 1971. McMullen was able to correctly identify, supposedly, a fragment of clay as belonging to an Iroquois ceremonial pipe, as well as describing how it was made and used. McMullen went on to assist Emerson and other archaeologists with their research, providing information about prehistoric Canada, ancient Egypt, and the Middle East that, again, supposedly, were later confirmed by research. When he visited an Iroquois site with Emerson, McMullen claimed he could actually hear the Iroquois talking and that he could also understand what they were saying. Note, I could not find any independent sources about this person, so grain of salt and all that. Mm -hmm. 
So psychometry is one of those things that I find a lot of fun as a fictional device. Right. It's super useful in fiction. You know, one of my favorite role-playing characters Mm -hmm. in the role-playing game we were both in that a friend played, her psychometry was one of her special powers. And I love the way that Kala's is used in the Raven Cycle. Mm -hmm. And this scene feels like a really good jumping-off point as both to why I wish that psychometry were true Mm -hmm. and what I think it actually is. Right. So the idea behind the psychometry, like we were talking about a moment ago, was that there are emanations from objects that can let you read their history. And this idea seems linked to me with the idea of animism. Mm -hmm. Animism is the belief that everything, including inanimate objects, possesses a spirit or spiritual energy. Now, as skeptical and rational as I try to be, I am an animist at heart. Mm -hmm. I can't help but believe on some level that the things we interact with daily will absorb energy. Mm -hmm. It just feels right to me that you should be able to pick up on that leftover energy and catch glimpses of what put it there, like a picture or a recording. Right. There's a bit of Japanese mythology I'm quite fond of that says that if an object exists for a hundred years, it becomes alive. Mm -hmm. These living objects are called sukagami or tulkami, and kami is the Japanese word for a spirit or a god. And there are tons of stories and examples in Japanese folklore that will be way off topic, so I won't get into that. Right. But the point is that in this pathology, these objects absorb energy over long years of use and care, and that energy builds up enough to give the object a life of its own. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a little different from psychometry, but I feel like it's definitely ties in and is related. Right. And if we're looking for examples in English literature, I'm immediately reminded of the Velveteen Rabbit. Toys in that story will become real when they've received enough love from a child. The titular Velveteen Rabbit is loved for years, almost to tatters, and that energy, and the help of a fairy, lets him transform into a live rabbit at the end of the story. Mm-hmm. So yeah, now on to what I actually think is going on with psychometry. Cold reading is probably a lot of it. The connection I see can be summed up in the exchange on page 328 of The Raven Boys, where we just were. Kelly goes into that very detailed description of what Neve has been up to and why, causing an astounded, that's amazing, from Blue. And Kelly replies, that is Neve's day planner. Mm-hmm. Now, that's more of an example of hot reading, where the reader does have access to specific relative information, but the two are often used in conjunction. Cold reading is basically picking up on context clues to come up with high probability guesses. That doesn't mean the person is being intentionally manipulative or deceiving. It's something that people end up doing on a subconscious level. Like we were talking about earlier, like with the human mm-hmm. yeah, you know, there's person a, psychometry. Uh-huh. There's a lot of things that can give you an information about a person like, you know, their body language, their age, their clothes, mm-hmm. just by looking at them. And the same applies to objects. Does the object look old? Does it have distinguishing marks? Mm-hmm. The context in which an object is presented, distinguishing characteristics, the reaction of other people to the object, all that adds up to make a sort of story of that object in the person's mind. And it makes sense to me that if you're picking up on those things subconsciously, it could feel like you're getting it from the object itself. Right. And that feeling is quite common. As James Randi notes, Many persons have had the experience of returning to a childhood location and feeling the chill of returning memories from long ago. Standing before an ancient monument can bring on strange feelings that seem to be the result of the edifice itself, not merely of an awareness of the history and personalities involved with that monument. It will be difficult to walk through Westminster Abbey and fail to be stirred by the memories thus invoked of famous persons. Mm-hmm. And an interesting test of this kind of theory was done by Professor Bruce Hood. He presented his audience with a sweater and asked people if they would try it on. Many people were willing to, until, that is, he informed the audience that the sweater had belonged to a serial killer. Very few people were willing to try on the sweater after that, and people tended to move away from people who did try it on. Right. (laughs) And Professor Hood has also done research on the importance children put on attachment items like teddy bears and blankies. Mm -hmm. They will convince these preschool-age kids that their special object is going to be put into a machine that can make a perfect copy of it. Mm -hmm. And then they're given the choice between having the real object returned or the copy. Obviously, it's just the real one. But the children overwhelmingly choose to have the real one back. Right. Mm -hmm. And this seems to indicate that the idea that objects have an essence or a soul is hardwired. It's kind of like an innate way that we learn about the world around us. It's just this thing that we feel is right and true. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Something else that I thought could potentially be related to psychometry might be synesthesia, Hmm. which is from Wikipedia, a perceptual phenomenon in which stimulation of one sensory or cognitive pathway leads to automatic and voluntary experiences in a second sensory or cognitive pathway. Mm -hmm. People who report a lifelong history of such experiences are known as synesthetes. And the reason I think that that might be applicable is because there are folks who can feel a texture and then that texture is translated as an emotion Mm -hmm. or see a color and they get a sound. Mm -hmm. And or or I've heard of one. It's like, you know, they hear a sound and they taste taste something. Mm -hmm. Right. And well, my stepdad had a stroke and all of a sudden he was saying that colors were loud. And my mom was like, that doesn't make sense. And I'm like, he might actually have synesthesia now. Mm -hmm. So that was something that I thought might be applicable if someone was to pick up an object and somehow have a reaction to the texture. Exactly. uh, Pick up like some sort of emotion with that object. Mm -hmm. Then this is getting off into woo-woo land, which we also often do. But like sometimes (laughs) I'll walk through Goodwill and I'll pick something up and I get like that weird gut feeling and I just Mm -hmm. put it down. I'm like, I don't want that. I don't want that. That whatever that is. That's not a thing that I like Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. It doesn't matter what it is. Right. The other thing that I thought was really, really kind of cool was finally there's a man named Akim Lissner. Lissner? Again, gosh who is an Australian optician of German origin. Mm -hmm. And Leisner has made his career in the precision crafting of specialized optics. The Avogadro project, which actually is trying to make a perfect kilogram, basically, Ah. because the kilogram is deteriorating. The Avogadro project needed the most perfect silicone sphere ever created, a flawless orb honed precisely to the mass of Lagrange K. The research team searched the world for manufacturing options and found Leisner's precision in handcrafting spheres superior to any machine. In addition to precision instruments, Leisner uses his hands to feel for irregularities in the roundness of the sphere. The research team has called his extraordinary sense of touch atomic feeling. And Leisner describes his job as massaging atoms. He works by hand because he believes, and the most advanced computer imaging has confirmed, that no machine can match his touch. Hmm. He can feel ridges that a machine can't pick up on. Leisner spends several months polishing the surface by spinning the object inside a pair of funnels until he can feel the molecular structure of the cubic silicone crystal itself with his fingertips. So it's interesting to me and possible that there are abilities or readings that sensitive individuals could pick up through touch, like Leisner, that perhaps we have not yet been able to scientifically measure or replicate. Possibly. All right. Chapter 35, it's a blue POV chapter. Everyone crams into the kitchen of 300 Foxway for a summit meeting and a brainstorm session. Unfortunately, other than everyone finally giving everyone else in the novel some exposition, nothing much is decided for next steps. So it's still Friday night. It's maybe around 11 p.m. Mm-hmm. And the kitchen is chaos. By the time three boys, four women, and one blue were in it, it felt like it hadn't been made with enough floor. Yeah, I like this because blue, not yet a woman, but also blue, half tree person. Agreed. Yeah. I love this. Adam was polite, helping Persephone make tea. This little detail is lovely, and it shows that they connect very early on. Right. Vernon more than made up for Adam's calm. And I'm like, yep, that's the status quo. That's how it works. The two of them slotting into each other's jagged edges. Mm -hmm. Orla came down for gossip, but stared so admiringly at Vernon that Callie yelled at her to leave and give everyone more space. That is Orla in a nutshell. Yeah. Oh, honey, you are barking up the wrong tree. (laughs) If Blue would pardon the expression. (laughs) For for a psychic that specializes in love, you are way off on this one. Mm -hmm. And while Orla is staring at Ronan, Blue is staring at Gansey. She doesn't notice he's wearing glasses and can't seem to figure out why he looks different. But he probably has been changed by his experience and maybe she can tell. Maybe. Gansey asks if someone can cut off his hospital bracelet. There was something gallant and hectic about the deliberately offhand way he asked it. Yeah. 
Persephone hands him some scissors and remarks, Blue, I did tell you about putting your thumb outside your fist if you were going to hit someone. You didn't tell me to tell him, Blue retorted. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, no, she didn't. She did not. <laughs> An understandably overwhelmed Mora is standing in the kitchen doorway, rubbing her forehead with her fingers. She addresses each group, trying to get the stories straight. And though Mora had spoken to all of them, they all kept looking at Neve. And you let them go through my things, Neve replied. Neve is calm and collected here, even though she's looking shady as hell. Right. As always. Mm-hmm. Blue expected her mother to look chastened, but instead, Mora puffs up with righteous anger. You lay the smack down, Mora. Yep. <laughs> Mora asks why Neve didn't just ask to come to research the ley line. She sounds so hurt here, and rightfully so. Mm-hmm. Instead, you pretended like you were actually committed to to finding Butternut. Oh, God, Kala, this is your fault, isn't it? <laughs> L- yep. O-L. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Blue says, I think I can be mad here, too. And I agree. So many people are keeping things from her. Yeah, Blue makes some assumptions here, too, though. And Mora says... I never said I didn't really know him. Mm. Blue doesn't like the expression on her face as she's shown as someone more than mom here. Mm. His name wasn't really Butternut, was it? Gansey asked Adam in a low voice. And I'm like, (laughs) oh my God, Gansey, really? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I can't help laughing picturing Gansey's consternation. Mm. Yeah, still though, I'm like, yeah, there's some gullible on the ceiling. Right. (laughs) Neve, still calm, asserts that she had been helping Mora, but that just wasn't all she'd been doing. And she reminds the others that they've been keeping secrets as well. Right. Neve, somewhat rightly, indicates that there was a danger. But if she knew there was a danger, why didn't she warn everyone else? Mm -hmm. Well, Blue is not psychic, Mora said crisply. But that doesn't mean she should be kept in the dark, Mora. She wouldn't understand is a kind of thin excuse. Yeah. You also didn't tell me, Gansey said. No, I know he's talking about the ley line and maybe his imminent death at this point, but I feel like Gansey's privilege is showing a bit here. I think Mora has a point. She didn't have any reason to trust Gansey about the ley line. He's still basically a stranger to her. Yeah. We know he's trustworthy that he needs to know this. Right. But But Mora isn't profiting off the ley line, so why wouldn't she just tell him? Like, I honestly feel like she's just not telling him because she's afraid Blue will get involved. And now mm. Blue's involved and she's getting called on her shit. And she's like, uh, you're right. Mm. Now Blue suddenly realizes Gansey looks different because he's wearing glasses. He looked at once older. Drink? <laughs> <laughs> and more serious. Or maybe that was just his expression in general at the moment. Mm-hmm. Although she would never, ever tell him she preferred this Gansey to the wind-tossed, effortlessly handsome one. Never, ever? That's a long time, Blue. <laughs> yep. Barrington Welk! Adam and Renan replied in unison. They exchanged a wry look. Yeah, I love my boys. <laughs> they talk about the cops and Welk. I believe he's what you call on the lamb, Ronan said. <laughs> Nobody calls it that, you dork! <laughs> Two more laughing in the waiting room. <laughs> Gansey says he doesn't think Welk had a plan, and I agree. I still don't think he does. No, Welk definitely doesn't have a plan and spends much of his time sitting on the curb in front of a closed convenience store trying to come up with something. Eventually, he settles on sleep in the car and think of something tomorrow. <laughs> That's page 345. <laughs> Neve says she thinks they, why does she think she can include herself, should wake the ley line? Yeah, of course she does. <laughs> she also suggests that a sacrifice is an always death. But isn't that what she plans later? Not really. Kind of. Because she plans on sacrificing her innocence. Since Welk doesn't really mean anything to her. But they all assume it means killing someone. Mm-hmm. Because Callus says, I'm pretty sure I heard it involved a dead body. Mm-hmm. Gansey asks, since cave's water is so weird, what does that mean for the rest of the line once it's woken? And Neve says she doesn't know, but it will be woken, then asks Persephone if she agrees, and Persephone affirms. Someone will wake it in the next few days. Mm-hmm. Neve and Persephone seem to be mirrors of each other here, opposite ends of the psychic stereotype, and they are agreed. Fate. Right. Neve continues by saying, whoever wakes up the corpse road will be favored by the corpse road. And she says, both the one who sacrifices and the one who is sacrificed. Spoiler alert! Adam is both the sacrificer and the sacrificed. Doubly favored? Possibly so. Mm-hmm. 
Blue interrupts that Noah doesn't seem very favored, and Neve disagrees, saying Noah's existence with the Gangzi seems preferable to a traditional spirit's existence. We have discussed this, and that isn't necessarily true. Yeah, I would say it's a favorable existence in that Noah was able to choose what his life was sacrificed for. Instead of waking the ley line, he woke Gangzi. Hmm. Gansey asks, if one of us did the ritual, would we be tied to the ley line the same way, even if the sacrifice didn't involve death? Gansey asks, but it's Adam who's listening. Yeah, and at this same passage, I noted that this feels like an Adam observation and find it interesting that he's had very little to contribute to the conversation so far. Mm-hmm. He's being oddly quiet, and it would make sense if he's absorbing to formulate a plan. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's going on. Right? Although, of course, it is hard to do a talking head scene with eight characters Uh so for simplicity's sake it makes sense to leave Adam as a passive participant Mm. and Gansy suggests we could just give the location of Cave's water to the police no Neve and Morris shouted at once didn't you feel that place Neve asks yes he did and Mm -hmm. I don't think Gansy really would give up Cave's water and like let other people traipse through there but he doesn't really know what to do at this point right Neve says does it seem like a place that can exist full of tourists. It's holy. It's little things like this that make me wish so much that we had gotten a more effective use of Neve as a villain or a redemptive character. Mm-hmm. We get her as neither, to be honest. Right. And Gansy admits later that he doesn't know what to do, saying he doesn't want to send the police to Caveswater or wake the ley line. He just wants to learn about Caveswater and find Glendower, and he doesn't even want to bother with Welk. Several exasperated faces turned on Gansy. Mora said, well, he's not going to just go away because you don't want to deal with him. Like Gansy's fate, Mora? <laughs> that seemed kind of hypocritical. I didn't say it was possible. I just said that was what I would like. Gansy does recognize that this is a naive answer. Mm-hmm. Gansy vows to go back to Caveswater and find Glendower. He took my journal. I'm not letting him take Glendower to you. And Blue offers to help. Yeah, and this is defiant Blue. And Mora must know it's pointless to tell her not to. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that was the chapters. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah. We are to the most valuable character. Okay. I am going to nominate the pig. (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) Because none of this would happen if the pig hadn't broken down. (laughs) Very true. (laughs) Or at least not the with Welk portion Mm -hmm. of things. (laughs) I was going to say Kala. Kala's great. Because she just has so many good lines here yeah. and a lot of good research into Neve and, right. and keep explaining things to Blue about her father. And I love me some Kala. I love <laughs> me some pig. I know. <laughs> All right. We're going to have to rush paper, scissors? this. Okay. All let's right. rush boat. Ready? Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Damn it. <laughs> so it's Kala. Damn it. Oh, you, you wanted the pig. Oh, of course I wanted the pig. <laughs> I nominated the pig. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't really have a Maggie watch this time around. The only thing we know is that she keeps teasing us with Dreamer Trilogy stuff. Mm-hmm. We have no new news on that. However, I did want to do a supporter shout out to Mandy, who sent me an email about something that we mentioned in episode 10. I was listening to episode 10 while working on my D&D campaign. (laughs) (laughs) The conversation about their classes made me laugh because all that came out of my mouth was Gansey is a paladin. (laughs) So, they recommend, I have Gansey as a paladin of Glendower, Blue as a druid, sorry, Navita, I'm with Shannon here, Adam as a wizard, an academic magic user, makes sense, mm-hmm. makes sense, and Ronan is the hardest one, but Bard was my first thought. Okay, I'm like, I, I can see it? Yeah. I can see it, but... They said, Ronan is the hardest one, but Bard was my first thought. However, I multiclassed him Bard Monk. Boxing <laughs> and hand-to-hand added with music and the sword. <laughs> so I thought that that was pretty great. So thank you so much. And we did have a couple of other people who talked about the D&D stuff. So mm-hmm. maybe we will get into it a little bit more. But thank you so much, Mandy, for sending <laughs> us that email. That was pretty awesome. I'm glad that people enjoyed that bit. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so thank you again. 
and no announcements this time around so i think we will just go ahead and wrap it up so thanks for joining us today our next episode will cover chapters 36 through 38 of the raven boys and no deep dive next time because of the sensitive subject matter that's going to be covered we are not going to be doing a deep dive yeah, we just thought it might be a little too much. Right. The next couple of chapters will be the fight with Robert Parrish and the aftermath of that. And we'd like to devote the time and energy to doing that justice. So our recording schedule, as always, is several weeks ahead of the release schedule. So follow us online for announcements of what chapters we'll be covering next. And please send us your thoughts. You might have an email read in an episode. And we absolutely do love getting contributions talking to you guys as always this is why we're here yep and you can find us practically everywhere on social media at raven girls r-a-v-i-n-g-i-r-l-s on twitter at raven girls on tumblr at ravengirls.tumblr.com facebook at facebook.com slash raven girls and you can reach us directly at ravengirls at gmail.com right and you can reach me at substanceparty.tumblr.com or via gmail at substanceparty with all of the a's taken out s-u-b-s-t-n-c-e-p-r-t-y at gmail.com and if we have referenced a post or article in the podcast we will do our best to include source links to those in the show notes the raven cycle and all affiliated properties are copyright maggie stiebotter and scholastic incorporated we hope you've enjoyed today's episode and until next time whoop whoop raven girls and that's it that is it All right, that's going out of the room now. (laughs) Do you want me to get you a picture of... No, we do not need a picture of this face. (laughs) I'm going to put it outside. (laughs) Okay. Shannon's like, you can leave it in. That's fine. I can still taste that in my mouth. (laughs) The (laughs) asafetida. All right.